Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We are here with a wonderful Canadian teacher who reached out to us. She is awesome, and we have such an important conversation to have today. Melissa, I know you're excited because, I mean, Canada is just... I know. We have another Canadian friend. Seems like everyone else has it together, (laughs) but, you know, we're all working on the same things, so it's exciting to talk about that. Yeah, and exciting things happening in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, welcome, Kim. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you know we love teachers, so you have your color-coded notes. You're all ready to go for today's conversation, (laughs) Super prepared. Categorized everything by color. I feel like you might have to take a picture of your notes for us for social media so that we could post. We could be like, guess who this this is? And everybody would be like, a teacher. (laughs) Definitely a teacher. (laughs) Yes. Different color highlights. (laughs) Love it. Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. And we know you're a busy classroom teacher, so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, Can you just tell us a little about yourself? Absolutely. So, well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I listen to your podcast all the time. I'm a big cross-country skier. And every day my husband and I would go cross-country skiing. And I would be listening to uh, Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast. I've learned so much from you. So I am super thrilled to be here. Um, Well, thank you. I'll just give you a little bit of information about myself. Um, oh, and just by the way, we don't have snow anymore. So the cross-country <laughs> ski season, I don't want to give people the wrong impression. That was like three months ago. Okay. <laughs> so the snow is gone. Finally. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I am a second language classroom teacher here in uh, Kingston, Ontario. Um, I have a very unique position. I'm both a classroom teacher as well as the special education teacher at my school. And I work in what used to be a dual track school, but it is now a single track school teaching French to second language learners. And um, I've been doing, uh, I've been working as a teacher for 22 years, um, but I came into the role of French immersion teacher in 2005 after starting my career in um, international teaching. And I did a teaching placement in Singapore, I did a teaching placement in France, and I taught for three years in Mexico. So just absolutely love second language learning. Um, we don't have a lot of Spanish here in Kingston, Ontario. So I, uh, I started working as a French immersion teacher, and um, have really loved uh, helping kids attain bilingualism and uh, learn learn a second language. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. I wish I had taught in all those places too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what a wonderful experience. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for being here <laughs> from Canada. Um, I'm wondering if you might be able to share a little bit about um, the executive summary that came out. Just if you could just like tell us about it. And we know that the Ontario Human Rights Commission put out the Right to Read executive summary, and that caught our attention. There's a lot of buzz around it. Yeah, a lot of (laughs) that's how we connected with you. So, what, like, 
can you just share a little bit about the buzz that like me? I'm, I know you were excited for this. So <laughs> yeah, a little bit about your excitement about it. Ab- yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm just going to backpedal a little bit. Please. Do. So um, I, I started teaching in a second language program back in 2005. And I was a, a classroom teacher and I was teaching a grade two classroom. And um, I was using all the reading strategies that had been taught to me uh, from teachers college. And a lot of those strategies were based on a balanced literacy uh, approach to, to language. And we were using strategies from the three queuing system. And I noticed that a lot of my French immersion students weren't able to use those through that three queuing approach because I was using the books that were provided to me and using the three queuing system. Um, we were looking at the pictures in the book and the students weren't able to guess the pictures, which was one of the strategies that I had been taught. And so, um, I, I realized that the three queuing system wasn't working for my second language learners, but on the other hand, they weren't able to read the text either because they didn't have the phonics. They didn't know the code. They didn't know the letter sound correspondence to actually read mm-hmm. the text. So all of a sudden I came at a bit of a crossroads. I thought, well, they, they can't read the text because it has been directly translated from English into French. And so the, the code that we call, you know, the phoneme graphing correspondence was too complex but they also weren't able to use the strategies that I had been taught in my teacher training. So um, I just always basically at the time knew something was wrong, but didn't know what to do about it. So just consider mm-hmm. that those kids were special education kids. And so usually every year I had three or four kids that needed special education support. And that looked very different for for a lot of the kids. But then in 2011, I applied for the job of special education teacher at a French immersion school. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be the spec ed teacher. I'm going to be able to teach kids how to read. And so I entered the role back in 2011 and I started working with students in small groups. And I thought, this is brilliant. Small group ratios, this is where it's at. (laughs) And what ended up happening was... I was now seeing three or four kids from every classroom in the school in second language program. And um, I realized that the small group ratio wasn't actually enough. It wasn't enough to teach these kids how to read. And I was really, I had no other tools in my toolbox. I had the same tools, the same strategies, the same approach, which is known as the balanced literacy approach using the three queuing system that the classroom teachers were using. So I decided to um, explore reading instructional a little bit more. And so in 2013, I started a master's program. And uh, here in lovely Kingston, Ontario, we have a very well-known university and faculty of education known as Queen's University. And I decided to do my MED. And my research in particular was on supporting students with reading difficulties in second language programs, French immersion in Ontario. So I thought, this is it. This is how I'm going to figure out how to help that, that, you know, five, 15 to 10 or 15% of students in every class. And um, there wasn't actually a lot of research available. 
what I found in my MED was usually, historically, students in second language programs in French immersion were counseled out. If they weren't learning to read through the regular instructional approach, then they were usually just deemed not fit or not suitable for French immersion and were counseled out and into the English program. But I thought, well, that's not right. I taught in Singapore. I taught in France. I taught in Mexico for three years. No one was counseled out of ESL. Nobody was counseled out. They were provided with the interventions. They were provided with um, the instructional support they needed. And so um, after graduating with my MED, I um, I explored the Orton-Gillingham approach. And we have this magical clinic here in uh, Kingston. It's called the Reading Clinic. And a lot of our students go to the Reading Clinic to, um, a lot of students who struggle to read go to the Reading Clinic. And so I went to the Reading Clinic and I said, will you hire me? And they said, well, <laughs> don't you already have a job? I said, yes, but I want to bring the Reading Clinic magic into the public education system. And I want to do what you're doing in English and adapt it for my FSL students. And they said, well, that's silly. Why don't you just go to Toronto, which is only two hours from where I live, and take the training that we took. So I did a two-week intensive course in Orton-Gillingham. And when I came back, I adapted uh, parts, elements of the Orton-Gillingham approach into my second language classroom. So... um, I've been doing, I've been using this structured literacy approach, an explicit, systematic, uh, uh, very sequential approach to reading instruction in my FSL, French as a Second Language Classroom, since um, 2018. And it has dramatically changed um, students' motivation to learn a second Mm -hmm. language, their ability to read the words. Um, But what I didn't realize was that this was actually going on all across the province of Ontario, that the things that I was seeing, the difficulties that I was seeing, those three, four, five kids in every classroom wasn't unique to my community. It was actually happening across the country. So uh, a number of um, parents and educators and uh, stakeholders uh, approached the Ontario Human Rights Commission in 2019 and said, there is a massive problem. There are too many students who are falling through the cracks, too many students who are not being identified early, too many students who are not getting the reading interventions that they need. And that is what um, what provoked the OHRC right to read inquiry. Can I just say, this is terrible to say, but it makes me feel better that it's not just the United States. I hate that it's a problem anywhere, but like, I'm glad we're in it together. <laughs> I'm glad we can learn from you all too. <laughs> well, and it's not just Canada and the United States. We've yeah. been looking at countries all over the world, Australia and England, and there are countries all over the world that have been using this holistic approach to reading, which yeah. where we think that students will magically learn to read, by exposing them to a language-rich environment. And um, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but we know um, through, through research that learning to speak is a natural process. And I love Dr. Louisa Motes, and she 
you know, has this wonderful quote, and she's the author of um, uh, Teaching Reading is Rocket Science. Mm-hmm. And she we says, love that. It is such a great article. And, um, and learning to speak is a natural process, but learning to read and write is not. So in mm-hmm. second language programs, often parents will say, I don't understand why my child's having difficulty. He or she speaks the language of instruction all the time at home. Well, students who are immersed in a language-rich environment may learn to speak and understand the language, but learning to read and write in a second language can be just as difficult and can be just as challenging in a second language as it is in their in their first language, and mm-hmm. it needs to be explicitly taught. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say that the challenges are the same? Or, or similar. I mean, I know there's different ones, but like, I mean, I feel like foundationally the challenge is that they're not being explicitly systematically taught to read. And that's like in a structured way. To me, that would be like the foundational piece. Do you think that that's accurate? Or I mean, I'm not a second language teacher, so I'm really relying on you here. <laughs> okay. So I always thought the missing piece was the um, decoding piece because my students were learning to speak and they were able to ask questions and they seemed to be able to follow instructions. Granted, a lot of them were probably looking at their peers and just following what their peers were doing. (laughs) And so I always thought it's the word recognition. And if you think of the simple view of reading, and if your viewers or um, audience isn't familiar with the simple view of reading, this is uh, an instructional model. This is a model that was developed back in 1986. I can barely say that it's so long ago, 1986. <laughs> and and basically it says for students to achieve reading comprehension, they need two things. They need word recognition, which is decoding, being able to peel the sounds off the page, being able to read the words. But then the second piece of the puzzle is being able to understand what they're reading, to attach meaning to those words. And I feel that in second language classrooms, this is just my, I'm speaking from my experience, um, having taught internationally as well as teaching here in Kingston, French immersion, that we need to put more emphasis on the language comprehension because students are not coming into the classroom with the oral language skills in a second language that they're coming in with in their um first language. So for example, um, students who are going to school in their native language, that was the word I was looking for, when they're coming to school in their native language, they typically have 1,500 to 2,000 words. So a child who's just entering kindergarten for the first time already has a bank of vocabulary in their their brains. They have like a mental dictionary. But when I get these kiddos on September 1st in French immersion, and I say, okay, mes amis, vas-y à la porte they have no idea. There's a lot of science. <laughs> exactly how Do I what just Madame felt. Lockhart's doing. <laughs> so there needs to be a lot of attention, a lot of explicit systematic instruction in those oral language skills, because oral language skills truly are the foundation of the reading process, because I can teach students to decode. And we know that students with reading disabilities and, and dyslexia particularly struggle with decoding. And given my background with the Orton-Gillingham approach, I can help kids with the decoding process, the letter-sound correspondence, the blending of sounds, putting syllables together to make words. 
but they have to attach meaning to those words. And so they have to have the, that foundation of the language comprehension um, to help them with reading comprehension. And so to answer your question, I do think, I truly believe that second language learners are tasked with the extra challenge. Um, a lot of, I think there, there are some myths, there are some misconceptions that students who are learning a second language, that it comes naturally and you just immerse them. Right. Um, especially, students, especially at a young age. Exactly. <laughs> They'll just and catch on. Like a sponge. <laughs> Their brains are like a sponge. That's, I mean, I'm just saying all the things I've uh, heard. That's exactly, yes. yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and I think we have all believed that. But we do have a percentage. In fact, um, there is some research to show that 60% of students will learn to read and write um, and speak very naturally. But we have about 40% of students who need explicit systematic code-based instruction. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to remember that that applies to second language learners as well. Yeah, that's so important. And I know that we are always on this podcast talking about the science of reading and how it is not just <laughs> the decoding side of that rope, but both sides. Um, so thank you for giving that example. It's really helpful. I'm yeah. And when we actually do get to talk about the executive summary, that was the note that I made. I was like, what about the rest of the rope? It only talks about some yeah. of it. So that was really interesting to me. So maybe that's our segue. <laughs> no, that's, that's a phenomenal segue because there has been a lot of, um, not, I shouldn't say there has been a lot, but there has been some pushback to the OHRC report, feeling like that it's focused too much on uh, phonemic awareness, which are the sound skills, mm -hmm. and uh, phonics. But the OHRC report is actually has quite a broad scope within the area of word recognition. And it acknowledges right from the get-go, right from the very beginning, the OHRC report acknowledges that learning to read is a very complex process. Mm -hmm. And there are many different strands of the rope. Um, and if you think of the Scarborough's reading rope, we know that language comprehension, if you tease it out, there are many different components of language comprehension. Yep. However, students can't comprehend until they can peel the words off the page. And that's the word recognition piece. So the OHRC report uh, really uh, focused on the word recognition piece because that seems to be the piece that's missing here in Ontario. That was the piece that teachers weren't trained in. Mm -hmm. um, teachers, I think, in teacher training programs had a lot of training in the language comprehension, read-alouds and uh, vocabulary-rich texts, and, um, you know, even some of the oral language piece and background information, making connections, making predictions, the language comprehension piece. But what was lacking was the instruction in the, the word recognition piece. So that's why the OHRC report really focused on that piece. That's so helpful to, like, point out just that it's not that that's the only thing that matters. It's just what teachers were missing right yeah. now and why why that's the emphasis in the report. That's really helpful. Absolutely. And, and I think um, one thing that came out of the OHRC report is not that teachers are doing anything wrong. Teachers are actually yeah. doing everything they have been trained to do, myself right. included, for... Yeah. 18 years, I was we telling did students, too. <laughs> look at the pictures, you know, make predictions and guess the word. 
But in second language programs, it is far more startling to see that these strategies don't work. And Dr. Kilpatrick has a, a great quote, and it is that um, the three queuing system and guessing it are strategies that poor readers use. Yeah. And so here we are, you know, reinforcing and prompting kids to look at the picture and, and, and make a good guess which yeah. they can do maybe in their first language, but certainly not in a second language when they don't have the vocabulary. No. Yeah. I mean, we're, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so scary that we're, we're teaching that. We're teaching that to kids, you know, that that's what bad readers do, yet we're like, do what bad readers do, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Would it be helpful if when Melissa and I read the report, we pulled out some that stood out to us? Would it be helpful for us to just kind of name some of those so that we could elicit some conversation around them? Um, Just a bit. Melissa, what do you think of that? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. All right. You want me to start? Sure. All right. So the recommendations, um, well, I'll start with the big takeaway. The big takeaway is that students need structured literacy regardless of the language of instruction. And I think that that's the most important thing to take away from this. Um, Then the recommendations that stood out to us. um, First of all, I love that they call it the Ministry of Education. It reminds me of Harry Harry Potter. Potter. I know. (laughs) (laughs) The whole time I was reading, I was picturing Harry Potter, and I'm like, this is is something that you're doing that's important for work. Not Harry Potter. Okay. At the end, though, you will have to teach us how to do our Canadian O's. Maybe you could teach us that before we go. Oh, I, I don't think we said our O's differently. <laughs> say it differently. Some, I know some people say bagel rather than bagel. Oh, that's a good one. That's. I would like to think I'm not one of those people who says bagel. <laughs> we didn't hear you say that. No. <laughs> All right. So the Ministry of Education. Um uh, the o- OHRC, which is the Ontario Human Rights Commission, recommends that the Ministry of Education, faculties of education, and school boards explicitly recognize the term dyslexia, which I thought was awesome that they named that. But I was curious, like, why are we – why do we have to name that? Like, is it not a recognized term? Do you do you have any intel, Kim? And if not, that's fine. I know we're well, putting you on the spot with that one. Well, no, that's okay because this has been a burning question of mine for many, many years. <laughs> and so – and I've asked – Everyone I know, why don't we use the term dyslexia? And oh, you don't use it at all. It is never written in a formal report. And yeah, when a child is diagnosed, so we use psychoeducational assessments um, to make a diagnosis of a reading disability. It, the child is always identified with a learning disability in reading or in reading and writing or learning disability in reading, writing, and math. And knowing what I know now, Hmm. a learning disability in reading is dyslexia. A learning disability in writing is dysgraphia. And learning disability in mathematics is dyscalculia. And so this is something that has to come from the ministry, I believe. Um, And in the boards of education, they don't use the word dyslexia, but I am really hoping that with the um, new curriculum that is to come out in September 2023, that there are recommendations to actually call a spade a spade. It really helps parents understand what it is and what it means if we actually call it what it is. And teachers. I mean, like as a teacher, I 
I will say I didn't know much about dyslexia, but I knew it existed. I knew what it was. But I, but because I never saw it on an IEP, and I mm-hmm. always saw the same thing, right? It was just like an, a learning learning disability. I was like, well, I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, I never, I also think it's I never put it together. Scarier. Isn't it almost scarier as like, it feels like one of those things where if you name it, you're like, this is what it is. It's called dyslexia. This is, and then fill in the blank, right? Rather than saying, this is a learning disability, there could be lots of options for that. Right. That's what I always thought as a teacher. Yeah. Like, I don't know what it is then. It could be a million things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, exactly. Especially we call it a learning disability in reading and writing and math. But I've always said, what's more important than naming the learning disability, whether it's you know, it, it is very important to call it dyslexia so that we can target our interventions because it's the interventions right. that are really important. And actually, that brings me to uh, another one of the recommendations in the OHRC report. In the report, they recommend universal evidence-based screeners yep. on foundational skills, focusing on word reading and uh, influency. And I feel like this is one of the greatest takeaways that I read in the report, because right now in Ontario, we have what I call a wait and see approach. Um, And in second language programs, the wait and see is even longer than it is for students in their first language, because students in French immersion here don't start English classes until they're in grade three. So a psychoeducational assessment isn't provided until the child is in grade four, five, or six. So we're talking about a child who's been in school for five, six years, and more likely than not, the child was experiencing difficulties in language at a very young age, and there may have been red flags when they were four or five, but we're waiting until they're nine, 10, 11 years old before providing a psychoed assessment. So I love the fact that the OHRC recommended evidence-based screeners. Now, a lot of people might be thinking, well, what is an evidence-based screener? Is that a (laughs) psychoed? And it's not. Uh, A psychoeducational assessment can diagnose for a learning disability like dyslexia, But screeners uh, screen for students who are at risk. So there are risk factors associated with dyslexia. There are some what we call warning signs or red flags that a student may possibly have reading difficulties. And some of those include articulation difficulties, difficulties with sound skills. Does the child have difficulty understanding um, uh, the beginning sounds, ending sounds of words? And so those are some early indicators. And just as importantly as early screening is the early intervention. And that's that's really what I focus on in my job are those early interventions and perva- preventing sort of a wait to fail approach, preventing those gaps from growing further yeah. and hopefully you know, providing them with enough skills and those foundational reading skills so that that they don't uh, fall further and further behind. I really want to hear about what you do in your classroom for this. But before we get there, I just want to call out a couple other things that were in the report um, because they also talk about training teachers Mm -hmm. about all of these things that you're talking about, not only, you know, professional learning once they become teachers, but I love that it talked about teacher education programs and making sure Mm -hmm. that we get this training before, before we become teachers. So we know, Go, you know, so we don't have to do like you did, Kim, right? And 
go find your find your own training and figure it out but that everyone's getting that training so I just I wanted to call that out because I just think it's really important mm-hmm. absolutely and this truly is a systemic issue we need professors we need instructors in the faculties of education who are experts yes. and right now um I don't know if I should say this, but it's like the blind leading the blind. Uh, Often we have people who aren't experts in um, reading who are in the faculties and we truly need experts in reading so that we can create experts in the classroom because all classroom teachers really do need to be experts. Um, Back in the day, we might have some special education classrooms, but now with a inclusionary approach and with a more integrated approach, every classroom teacher would benefit from knowing how to teach students with reading difficulties and with dyslexia. So good. I'm excited for that. It does feel like that they did think about like the whole wraparound, the big picture for this um, executive summary. So that was, again, Melissa, I, I echo the same sentiment. It was really heartening to see that pre-service teachers will be receiving information as well as professional development for teachers who are, you know, already working because who has two weeks to take off to, I mean, other than in the summer to go do a, a training and do you even get your summers off Kim <laughs> or do Here you do in Canada? We do. It's only two okay. nice months of the year. We have sunshine. <laughs> do you have year round school? You know, I mean, there's lots of different ways, but yeah, I mix that. That is so good that you I'm like found a training, but also that you found a, a reputable training. Like, you know, I feel like with yeah. that kind of thing, you, it could have been up in the air. So really lucky that you did your homework, did the right, Thing and, and got yourself what you needed. Well, that's inter- interesting you'd say that because I truly feel very fortunate to have been able to do this. First of all, my sister lives downtown Toronto, so it was a little bit like a staycation. I was able to <laughs> stay with her and um, my husband, who is a phenomenal source of support, stayed home with the, the kids. And so um, I was very fortunate, but I was, it was not inexpensive either. So part of right, the reason yeah. I like to do what I do is because not everyone has that fortune of taking two weeks of intensive Orton-Gillingham training. And I just want to say, too, that um, there are many other programs out there other than Orton-Gillingham. So Mm -hmm. I took my Orton-Gillingham training because it was recommended to me before I knew what I know now. Um, Like I said, I went to Kingston's Reading Clinic and I said, teach me the magic. And (laughs) I didn't really want a second job as a mom of two young children, but I really wanted to ensure that the students in my school had equal access because um, I probably should have said this earlier. I have, I, my school is very diverse and we have some very affluent students and we have some students who really live in uh, vulnerable communities here in Kingston. And so I was really seeing that, that discrepancy between those who could afford private tutoring and those who couldn't. And it was that inequity that was really, really bothering me. And that drove me to um, seek out my Orton Gillingham, but there are other options that are more affordable um, and I've taken um, I've taken some science of reading courses since my OG. So please don't think that Wharton Gillingham is the only <laughs> um, way to get structured literacy uh, training and to help students with dyslexia. Mm-hmm. There are certainly other affordable programs out there too. Yeah, thank you for naming that too. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. 
So Kim, tell us a little bit about what happens in your classroom. Like, how did you learn all of this great stuff? And you had to kind of figure out what that means for second language learners, right? It's a little, not, not a one-to-one correlation. So, so what, what do you do? Um, so, well, I've been doing this, like I said, since 2011, and I've got it down to a fine art. <laughs> um, and, and, um, like the, I, I think the kids love coming because all kids love feeling successful. Yeah. And so they come into my, um, I have a, a small room and I take three or four students. Now during COVID, it looked a little bit different. Typically what I do is I group small groups of students based on learning need. So if I have students who are really struggling with uh, phonemic awareness skills, if they're having difficulty identifying beginning sounds and words, or if they're having difficulty with syllables, or if they're having difficulty with phonics, then I would group those students together. Obviously, during COVID, um, we had to cohort. So I was seeing students with similar needs in the same classroom. So a basic day for me would be, I, I see about 25 students in five short 15 minute blocks. So I will take a small group of four or five students into my class and we work on a targeted skill. So I have done um, some screeners on these students. Sometimes I use a phonemic awareness screener. Sometimes I use a phonics screener. And what I do is I use this magical tool that I learned in Orton Gillingham, which is essentially letters on cards. And I, it's as simple as it's, unfortunately your viewers can't see me, but they are cue cards or recipe cards from the dollar store. And I simply (laughs) put the grapheme or the letter on the front of the card. And on the back of the card, I might put a keyword. So in French, we might have um, the letter B. And I would say to the student in French, this is the letter B. Can you say B? And they would say the B. And they all say, it says the sound B. And I would make sure when they say the sound that they're not putting that extra uh at the mm-hmm. end. So like right from the get-go, I would um, make sure that they're pronouncing the word correctly. And so, you know, slowly we build what I call our code pack. And those are letter sound correspondence in their second language. So by the, um, I work with the students in uh, six-week blocks. So I'll see 25 students for six weeks and we will go through the code, we will review the code that um, that they know and just review it. But then I introduce a new sound um, that is new or unfamiliar. And we practice that. And the way we practice that is I show them what the sound looks like. And I always approach reading from a speech to print perspective, like I'll say the sound. So I'll use the sound because this is new for you too, because I don't believe you speak in French. No. Um, the sound is wa. <laughs> and wa is represented with the letter O and I. So this does not exist in English. So this looks actually very different in English than it does, or sorry, it looks very different in French than it does in English. So I would show them the O and I on my cue card. And I would say, this says the sound wa. Can you think of any words with the sound wa? And depending on their grade and their oral language, they may have some French words with the sound wa. And a lot of them do because um, one of the first things they learn in school is, can I go for a drink of water? And the word drink is bois. 
So they may or may not come up with the word <laughs> Sometimes I have to guide them, but I really want them to hear that sound mm-hmm. and so that they can associate that sound with the letters. And can then, you, can you take us through how you would help them hear that sound? Like, is that too intricate? No, I would. Because I feel to. like Melissa and I have no idea how, like, we, we could totally be your students right <laughs> yeah. now. I would 100%. love it if you were my okay. students. So, so I would go through the code. Unfortunately, I don't have a code pack in front of me right now, but I would say, I would show you my code and I would, sh- we start with a visual drill. So I would show them the letters that we have practiced and that they have consolidated. And so we're just going to go through the alphabet and you can just repeat it after me. Let's pretend this has the letter A on it. And I would say, ah, and you'd repeat, ah, ah, b, 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 k, k, d, d, d. Okay, be careful. You don't want to have that schwa at the end. You don't want to have the uh, so we have uh. to make sure it's clean. It's d. And it's not duh. duh. Yeah, great. I job. was trying to say it in a Canadian accent. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till we get to the letter R with the R rolling. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't roll. I don't. <laughs> well, so so I would essentially start with a visual drill, and we would go through these, and then I do what I call a seesaw approach. I would then get out um, their little whiteboards. I uh, use one of my husband's old socks that they put on their non-dominant hand. And with their dominant hand, they have their marker. And then we would do the auditory drill. I would say the sound. So I would say, ah, and they would write the letter A. And I'd make sure that they're writing it correctly. Um, hand Handwriting is incredibly important, but especially mm-hmm. for students with dyslexia who have a hard time maybe discriminating between certain letters that may look similar, like B looks similar um, to D, they look similar. So I would show them that these letters are actually drawn differently. The letter B, we start with, in French, it's le baton. And we start with the line and then we do la belle. And then for the letter D, we actually start with the magic C. So that kinesthetic differentiation helps the students differentiate between the letters and more importantly, the letter sounds. So I would say, can I quickly describe, you started with, for those who are not like watching right now, because they didn't, it's podcast. So (laughs) you started with the line. So for the B, you started at the top and came down to the bottom and then hooked around to sweep, you know, the little hook of the B with the D you started with the hook first and then went up to the line. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. I just wanted to describe it also in English. I could hear you speak French all day though. It's beautiful. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's very nice of you to say. Um, unfortunately, yeah, I would love to go back to France and just do one more year in France. Uh, we'll join you in the wine region, preferably in the wine region. So I call it the seesaw approach. So I show the students the letters on the cards and they say the sound to match the letter. They say the phoneme to match the grapheme. And then we do an auditory drill. So then I say the sound and they have to match the letter to the sound. And then we do blending drills. Um, I would take uh, a consonant that they know. So for example, I would take the uh, letter S is always a good one to start with because many of the consonants in French, as well as in Spanish, are similar. um, Many of the consonants are the same in French as they are in English. So we would have the consonant S and it says S. And then I would have our new sound, which is WA. And we do a blending drill. We might go S, WA, SWA. And then I'd have the letter T and I put the T beside the O-I, which is wa, twa. 
But the really cool thing about teaching the second language is for all of these kids, these are just sounds. There's no meaning attached to them. So what I try to do, and I actually just did this this morning, is I always ask them, you know, what does this mean? What does, what does this mean? And often they can sound out the words. They can go swa, swa, but they don't know that that is silk. I was going to say, that's what I can do it, but I don't know what that means. (laughs) And and why would they? Um, But once we start blending those together, they can start making syllables. So Mm -hmm. I always start with the individual letter. Um, I actually have... I I call it the backwards design of reading. And when I did my master's at Queen's, I used a backward design of instruction approach for my master's project. And I use a similar approach in my reading instruction. And I just made this up, but it makes sense. We think that reading starts with a book. And so often when we want our kids to read, what's the first thing we do? We give them a book. The problem is they can't read a book until they can read sentences. So then we have to think, oh, okay, let's put the book aside. You're not ready for that. Let's look at sentences. But then they look at a sentence and they re- we realize they can't read the words yet. So we put the sentence aside and we you know, show them the words. But they can't read the words from a structured literacy lens. They can't read the words until they can match the sounds to the letters. Sure. And so we think, okay, let's put the words aside. Let's look at the letters and what sounds they make. But I'm finding, especially with the pandemic, students are having a lot of difficulty saying certain sounds. So we have to go back even further and we have to work on the articulation of sounds. And so a lot of the work that I do actually starts at the bottom of the ladder and it's saying the sounds. And I have a mirror in my classroom. We look at what my mouth does when I say wa, which is the O-I grapheme. When I say wa, what is my mouth doing? What are my lips? What are my teeth? What am I? And then we have sounds like and mm, which are similar sounds. And my mouth is doing the same thing, but we put our hand on our throat to feel the vibration. So students who have articulation difficulties can feel voice, the voiced and unvoiced sounds. And then once they can say, because for example, like uh, a van is very different than a ban. And so, or a van is very different than a fan. So we have to make sure Now, that's an example in English, but we have to make sure they can say the words because if they can't say the word correctly, it's going to drastically affect their ability to make meaning from that word. So I I have that sort of backward design of reading. We start with the sounds and from sounds, we look at the letter sound correspondence and then we do blending. So when we're blending these syllables, I then have these cards with syllables on them. And we do a drill with the syllables. So if we're working back to the sound wa, you might, we might do a drill like bois, swa, twa, lua, fwa. And I would say, fwa, what does that mean, fwa? And if they don't know, then I would tell them that that means cold because we have to attach meaning to these sounds. And what we're finding in second language programs is students are doing a great job of decoding but they can't comprehend what they're reading. So I always make sure that I attach that meaning piece or that vocabulary piece to what they're decoding. And in fact, I've got a little story about my time in Mexico. Um, 
living in Mexico for three years, I was teaching at uh, an American school. So I taught with 80 other Canadians and Americans, but I really wanted to learn the language. So I went to Oaxaca down in the South for a couple of weeks and I went to a reading school and I learned very quickly that reading in Spanish is very phonetic, meaning one sound, one letter has one sound. So when I came home at Christmas time, I read um, a card that someone had given to me in Spanish. And my dad said, Kimberly, you are a beautiful reader in Spanish. That's wonderful. What does it say? I said, (laughs) I I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. Because I had learned the letter sound correspondence, but I had no idea what I was actually reading. And I'm finding in second language programs, we need to be very cognizant of that because a child sounds like they're reading doesn't mean they're comprehending what we're, they're reading. So we really need to build that that language comprehension foundation. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. In their native language, they may have heard the words before, right? So then when you put it to the print, it's like, oh, I know, I've heard that. I know what that is. But if you, you don't have that background coming in, then <laughs> it's a blank slate. Exactly, exactly. So they're, they're all on the same even playing field when they come in. Yeah. But there's a huge learning curve for our second language learners when they come into the classroom. Not only are they learning the routines and the do's and the don'ts of being four years old, learning to go to the bathroom by themselves and all of that fun stuff, but they're also um, trying to figure out what the teacher's saying to them. Yeah. And that's big. Is there that's any... Huge. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering, Kim, if there's like even more confusion ever, because I'm just I'm thinking of Spanish because that was my second language that I took some classes in and didn't learn very well. But, you know, there are letters in Spanish that make different sounds than they do in in English. And, you know, I could handle that as a high school, you know, student just taking a Spanish class like, okay, the the J makes two different sounds. Right. But I'm wondering how that like, does that become I don't know, is that complicated Confusing. for you? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not complicated for me anymore, but it certainly is complicated for our young learners. And mm-hmm. in essence, they are learning two codes. And yeah. although some of the letters do cross over, um, they do essentially have to learn two different codes. And what I find is happening is some of my students will go and they'll have private tutoring in English but then they come to me and all of a sudden they have to learn that second code again and really, um, really practice that. And I also just, just back to your original question, I just want to clarify the difference between phonics and phonemic awareness too. Um, So phonemic awareness are the sound skills and those are what we call cross-linguistic. Those do transfer across languages. So Mm -hmm. when, I was going to talk about parents later, but this seems like a great time to talk about parents. Um, I am a huge believer in parent engagement. The more engaged parents are, the more um, we can connect the dots between school, classroom, and home. And unfortunately, there are many parents of students in second language programs who feel they can't support their child at home because they don't speak the language of instruction. And I always say, stop. Yes, you can. One of the best ways to support a second language learner is by practicing their sound skills in their native language. So, for example, often um, I will say to parents in my school community, if you are reading a story to your child at bedtime, instead of asking your child, what was your favorite part? Or 
Can you tell me about the main character? Ask your child to name a rhyming word. So if you're reading Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat, because who doesn't love Cat in the Hat? Oh, we just read Hat, that yesterday. It's <laughs> and it's in French. It's in French too. It's amazing. Yay. Instead of saying, you know, tell me about the cat, what color was he? Ask your child to name some words that rhyme with cat. Um, point out the fact that they have the same ending sound. Ask them, you know, Sam, I am. Sam, what's the first sound you hear in Sam? And even though the reading is in English, those sound skills are going to transfer over into the second language. So when really I'm working with the child in the class on the next day, and we talk about le premier sound, they've already practiced that. Whether the word is in English or in French or in Spanish, a first sound is a first sound. And so um, I, I do feel that parents truly can help at home um, and they just need a little bit of coaching. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And I think that direction is really helpful. I think any parent would appreciate it. <laughs> Please tell us what to do and we will do it to help the teacher, right? And exactly. I'm not just to help the teacher, but to help our, our child. So, yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I did my master's. I ended up doing a master's project. I didn't do a thesis. That just seemed like a lot of writing. So I ended up doing, I wanted something practical because I knew after my master's, I want to go back into the classroom. So I created a practical resource for parents of children who are struggling to read in, in French immersion. And part of that was developing bookmarks for parents. And traditionally in the schools, we have bookmarks that are based on the three queuing system. And you may be familiar with them. Um, they have try and lion, tell your child to keep trying. I know have, I want, it makes me want to cry, but you can keep going. It's, I know it's cringeworthy, <laughs> you know, lips, the fish, get your lips ready. Well, you can get your lips ready if you know what the letter says, but if you don't know it's b or d, your lips are going to look different. So I, I also feel like, like, let's do a real example, like a real life example for adults here. I let me get ready to go for a run. I'm going to put my sneakers on. I'm going to I'm going to be ready. I'm going to get my running clothes. If I don't have know how to like have good running form, I'm not going to make it a mile. Like I could be ready all I want. I could, you know, jazzed up with all the gear and but like it is so ridiculous that we think that getting your lips ready is going to help anyone. Or Skippy the frog? If it's too oh my hard, God, skip I it. Know. And then you ask the child to tell you about the text. Well, of course they can't retell right. the story because they skipped half the words. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a second language, to be honest, they're going to skip all the words because they can't read any of them. They I mean, I would, right? Yeah. If you asked me to do it right now, I'd be like, I don't know, Kim, help me. <laughs> I'll just skip them. Just skip me the frog. Lori, just skip me the frog. I, you know what? I would get my mouth ready and then just skip. <laughs> <laughs> and I would tell you to be a trying lion. You're not trying hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. Oh, my God. So I'd be like, I'm trying to skip, okay? <laughs> but it is ridiculous. And those strategies may work temporarily for kids who can read but they are not effective. They are in fact harmful. Telling kids to, um, you know, skip the word or to, I forget the looking at the picture. I forget what that picture cue is, but it's like looks at something is actually harmful. It's teaching them to do things that poor readers do. So I, I did toss them. I recycled, actually I recycled them. And, <laughs> and I rewrote my own bookmarks that align with um, the science of reading. And so I created some bookmarks that I give to parents that give them very 
clear, concise, practical strategies that they can use at home. When reading to your child, ask them to name the first sound in a word. Ask them to tell you rhyming words. And so I have um, many of the uh, phonemic awareness strategies. And then I created a second bookmark for um, beginning readers. The first one's for emerging readers and the second's for beginning readers. And that is a more phonics-based um, checklist so that parents Kim, have some strategies. Yeah, Kim, I'm um, I'm just anticipating us getting lots of emails <laughs> and requests like for these bookmarks. Is it something that you are able to share? Sure. I mean, okay. so I, I would love I to link it in our newsletter. I think yeah, for that sure. might be because I'm imagining us feeling fielding a lot of uh, inquiries yeah. like Kim What's mentioned these bookmarks, bookmarks that she made. Are they on? Are they anywhere I can find them? So we'll just link them so that, you know, if anybody's wondering, you have it as a resource. Sign up for our newsletter, literacypodcast.com. We will send Kim's resources via newsletter. I'm more than happy to. Do you want me to put your uh, logo at the top? Because right now it has my school yes. logo, and that would be really weird. Yeah, no, but the, that was That'd so fun. That would be great. Thank yeah. you. Okay, will do. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> well, the more parents, and this is the thing, the more parents I can help, the more teachers that I can share this information with, ultimately the more students who will benefit. And yeah, for sure. I truly believe there isn't an, an educator out there who doesn't want to share everything they know. And I mean, we're teachers. Sharing is caring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like this is a great segue. Melissa, you want to transition us into yeah. all of Kim's incredible personal work? Before we do that, Eagle oh, Eye yeah. was the oh, Eagle, Eagle Eye is the one that we don't want it <gasps> Thank you. to look at the pictures. I had to look at it. I just sort up. of like <laughs> shoved it out of my brain. <laughs> it's um, unfortunate that we're connecting with these lovely animals, you know? <laughs> I know. I know. But yes, Kim, we wanted to ask you about, um, because you, you did just what you talked about was like, I have to share this with other people, right? This can't just be happening in my classroom. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the work you did to get the word out beyond your classroom? Um, sure. I, it really started at the beginning of the pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, as a special education teacher, and not a classroom teacher, I, the Ontario Ministry of Education didn't provide a lot of guidance. And so I immediately thought parents, for the first time, are at the forefront of their children's education. I'm going to try and help parents um, because not all of my students had an electronic device and there's the Google Meet or there were just a lot of kinks to iron out. So I immediately reached out to parents and I created a series of 10 short videos on what I do in my classroom. I did, uh, and they were all three to five minutes. So I showed them how to use a code pack to do a visual drill. I showed them how to do an auditory drill. You say the sound and the child writes the letter or you say the syllable and the child writes the syllable. And I just sort of fell in love with the idea of helping parents because that was the best way for me to help the students. And so um, around the same time, the International Dyslexia Association of Ontario, uh, the current president is Alicia Smith, and she is phenomenal. So I want to give a shout out to Alicia Smith, because she certainly was instrumental in the release of the Ontario Human Rights Commission's uh, OHRC report. Aww. She is the mother. Well, go Alicia. Go Alicia. She is, I don't know where she gets her energy from, but she is, she moves mountains. Let's say that she moves <laughs> mountains. And um, she reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in facilitating 
parent and educator mentorship circles. I said, count me in, but what's a mentorship circle? So <laughs> they- You're they, like, yes, I'd be happy to do it. I'm, just, like, sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> because we had, what, four months of lockdown and I was doing these parent webinars, which I thoroughly enjoyed, but um, I, I really wanted to reach out and branch out and help as many parents as I could. So we facilitated these mentorship circles for parents- who have children in French immersion. So these are parents who are like, oh, my child's learning at home in French. I don't speak French. How do I help them? And so we did these mentorship circles focusing on structured literacy and the science of reading approach. And then it sort of grew from there. I um, ended up uh, helping our local library. So here in Kingston, we have eight branches of libraries. And I started doing webinars for our local libraries primarily helping parents. And then I reached out to the Learning Disabilities Association of Kingston. And uh, the, I reached out to the president, Helen Simpson, who is equally phenomenal. And I said, I would really like to provide effective research-based reading instruction to students in our community, in our Kingston community, who can't afford private tutoring. I said, mm-hmm. What's near and dear to my heart is ensuring that all students learn to read. And she was very supportive. And so we got funding from a local organization and we were able to train 12 teachers, sorry, 12 teacher candidates at Queen's Faculty of Education. So we got 20 uh, 20 candidates originally, and we now have 12 who were trained in the Big Dippers Science of Reading online training program. And I provided 10 weekly workshops where I did everything you just saw me do now (laughs) with the code packs. And so these teachers have the background knowledge of the science of reading, but then they also have the practical classroom strategies that they need to help these struggling readers. And with funding are providing free science of reading tutoring to students who can't afford tutoring, who live in our area's most vulnerable communities. Um, so I'm super proud of that initiative. Yeah, but then, that's amazing. Then one of the other things I'm super proud of is um, five years ago, I worked as a tutor for family and children's services for students in foster care. And these are students who certainly don't have access to private services. So I approached family and children's services and I said, I now have this wealth of knowledge could I share this with your tutors so that these kids who are in foster care, who are in childcare, can have access to research-based instruction that focuses on word recognition? So um, with my good friend, Emily Moorhead, we did a series of four webinars for, for these tutors so that students in foster care can get um, evidence-based uh, tutoring for free. That's amazing. So there is lots going on right now. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, I just love are, how you're like, this... I have this knowledge. I have to share it. <laughs> exactly. It should be kept in a vault. Knowledge yeah. should never be kept in a vault. It should be shared. And um, yeah. And, and and to be honest, I feel like teachers are are hungry for this information. I feel like te- this, yeah. is, this is the missing link. I think there are a lot of teachers who have been looking for this and who are eager to soak it up. It is, I think, overwhelming. Um, for some, but I, I feel like if you take a, a gentle approach, um, I'm just going to mention one other thing. Last summer, 
I, I said to my good friend, Emily Moorhead, um, what do you think about starting a book club? Just a relaxed book club. It was July. I said, we'll have people around the pool. We'll make <laughs> it relaxed. And she said, great. So we wrote a list of 10 books that align with the science of reading. Many of them are recommended on the idea of Ontario's website. And we started a science of reading book club. And um, one of the first books we read was by Christopher Such, the art and science of primary teaching primary reading. And I feel like people read that book and something in them clicked. Mm. But best of all, second language teachers are seeing that this applies to them too, that this is not just for English language or native language learners, that the science of reading, how children learn to read is applicable to children in all different languages. That's so cool. I'm curious, are are you at the webinars? Are they available? I mean, if they are, we'd love to link them. Will you send us all those links? Sure. Okay. That's awesome. (laughs) I just want to make sure, like, as you're mentioning all of these resources, like, they are amazing resources. Is your book club, do you have a website or was it just total <laughs> grassroots? Like, hey, meet at so-and-so's house on Thursday. They went to the pool, and, Lori. Yeah, they went I know to the that's pool. what I was thinking, but <laughs> I was hoping you can come to my like backyard. <laughs> I will come to your backyard and do a book. Well, that's what I was hoping. Can we do a book club from Maryland? <laughs> we can. We can. We have some people on the island here who just tune in virtually. So oh, that's really cool. Oh, we, absolutely. Neat. So I, I sent out an email to this special education team in my board. And within 24 hours, I had 44 people signed up for this. So uh, about, I would say 20 people came in person. And the other 20 were uh, on zoom for various reasons. And we have now introduced a special speaker or a key, not a keynote speaker, that sounds too formal, because it's certainly like a not guest. formal, a <laughs> guest speaker at each event. So we've had a speech and language pathologist, we have someone who's doing her PhD in MTSS. And we've had a great team of French immersion teachers who are from the Toronto area who have developed a French resource for phonemic awareness, and it's called Phonemique. And it is phenomenal. And that. <laughs> that was a terrible accent. Phenom- I'm not even going to say it right. Phonemic. Did I say it right? Phonemic. 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 And, and it is a game changer. So teachers are not having to reinvent the wheel. They're not going on Pinterest. They're not going on Teachers Pay Teachers. They're not spending hours and hours of their own time at night creating things. Phonemic is a French resource that has been created to help French second language teachers um, across Canada, really. So cool. Yeah. Oh There's my great gosh. things happening. It's super uh, exciting. And it's happening at the speed of light. Yes. Like you said, teachers are helpers. They're helping each other by doing this. That's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, They're a great team. I call them the dream team. I know. Uh. I feel so like cool. I have a million more questions for you, but it's already I know, been an hour. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. And I, one thing I do want to say before we get to Kim's like rapid fire questions, the the thing that we, we talked about earlier, but you just mentioned like one of your guests was a speech language pathologist. Mm. I just keep wondering, like my daughter, I remember she had some, she had an IEP for speech when she was very young and like before she got to school and then into kindergarten and then you know, she was quote, met the benchmarks and was fine. I'm so curious about kids who are developing their speech and language skills and having difficulty with speech, but there are markers 
that like, for example, I believe, um, and I'm like 99% sure, but I will say, I believe that the R sound is not like developmental until they're eight. So how, oh, I was right. Okay, good. So then how are they able to, I mean, that's second grade and that's when we would want them to be fluent in all of those sounds. How, if they're saying this sound incorrectly by no fault of their own, right? Even with the best teaching and, and structured literacy, how can we help them if it's being said wrong? I, well, you've brought up. I mean, we could talk a lot, I think, about that. Like, that's like a whole other podcast, but well, I, that's what's rolling in my head of top yeah. of mind right now. Like, okay. Absolutely. Like, is there is there another problem that we could solve as we're solving this one? Well, <laughs> to, to make a long story short, I would say MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support. We need a strong tier one because classroom teachers spend more time with students than than anyone else in the education system. So if a child is having a difficult time with pronunciation, we'll use the sound R, for example. Even though speech and language pathologists are the experts, the chances of a child seeing a speech and language pathologist in the public, public education system for more than 15 minutes every two weeks is unheard of. And that certainly will not be effective. So we need a strong tier one. We need teachers who aren't trained necessarily like a speech and language pathologist, but have enough skills and feel confident enough with their skills to be able to give students immediate feedback, to know the proper articulation of sounds, and to not accept necessarily that, I mean, some students are developmentally not able to say it, but helping the student with the shape of their mouth and showing them where the tongue is and showing them where their lips are are certainly things that classroom teachers can do. Having said that, not during the pandemic when we're wearing masks. Right. So it has been, we are noticing, or I am noticing a lot more articulation difficulties with students than I ever have seen before. And my own daughter who turned 10 yesterday, um, she's a two digit number. She was having a difficult time with her letter R. And I remember driving her to daycare when she was three and, or sorry, I was driving her to school and she was four and she had recently broken both arms. Oh my gosh. Uh, two separate fall, two separate falls within a 10 day period. Oh and my that's goodness. a whole other story. <laughs> and she, she was very pensive. And she said to her sister, she said, Mia, the snow is white. And I broke my white arm, white and white. And her older sister, Mia said, no, Sophie, you broke your right arm. Say, Rrr. she said, it's okay, Mia. Some people can say it and some people can't. <laughs> and that describes her to a T. She's a very confident kid. But right away, I thought, <laughs> We need to correct this. And so I had a speech and language pathologist see her. And like you said, she was four and I was told to wait until she was eight. And I thought by then it is going to be really difficult to undo. So we worked on it intensively and we got private services. And so um, I do think I'm a big believer in prevention before intervention. And if we have a strong tier one, then we are going to have fewer students who need interventions. If we can help them in the main classroom, then we're going to have fewer referrals made for tier two and certainly fewer referrals for tier three. And that goes for for reading instruction as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I can just tell you're so confident in what you do and it's because of all the knowledge that you gained. And I I think it's so amazing that you're advocating for that strong tier one because we believe that too. So 
Yeah. Very important. It's always nice to meet a new literacy friend who feels <laughs> so much passion the way that we do. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. My husband thinks I'm a little obsessed. Well, it's okay. <laughs> we don't could mind. Be, well, it could be, yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> yes. All right. You ready for your five things you love? I hope so. <laughs> First thing that comes to mind. Here we go. Okay. All right. What do you love to read? Fiction. Where the Crawdads Sing is my oh, favorite last book. What do you love to binge watch? Ooh. Sex in the City? That may, very relatable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's the best. Wait, did you want to share one? Um, oh, uh, a, is the Cana- Canadian, a Canadian one? one? Oh, The Bachelor? Is that what? Oh, oh, the Canadian. Yes, thank you. I was like, my, The Bachelor, that's my show. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> talk more. Guilty, guilty pleasures. <laughs> no, you're right. I love Sex and City, but also uh, CBC here in Canada has a phenomenal show called Working Moms. And oh, I know that show. I love that so show. Funny. Isn't it on Netflix? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yes. And it's oh, filmed yeah, right outside of my sister's condo. So oh, that's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Wave, I wave to her. <laughs> that's that a great is so show. funny. Yeah. It's amazing. It's so That's great. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that show. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Well, the first time I watched it, though, I was on maternity leave, and they talked about how long their maternity leave was. And I was like, well, wait a second. This is not in the United States. <laughs> oh, no. How, you get 12 months? 12 months. And I believe we can now I, – I don't want to say it in case I'm incorrect. When <laughs> I was on maternity leave, I took 12 months. But I believe you can extend it for 18 now without losing your role. We're lucky if we get paid or unpaid? That's my real question. Is it paid maternity leave? I was paid, but part of it is through EI, and the other part you're topped up by your organization. Okay. But don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure. (laughs) I say don't quote me, but it's being recorded, so I don't know what to do about that. That's all right. Well, we, I'm gonna get we, we won't hold you to it. We won't hold you to it. No, yeah. You're saying you're not sure. It's okay. We're very fortunate. All right. What do you love to listen to? Ooh, Bob Marley. Yeah. Ooh, and podcasts. Your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Bob Marley or Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. (laughs) You're fitting right in here. This is is the right space for you. (laughs) All over the place. Well, I mean, that's how we started the podcast. I asked about the right to read and then we went back and and then we came back around to it. So we're good. Like the literary. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. What is a memory you love as a teacher or a student? A memory that I love as a teacher, I would say that's a tough one. I wish I had a little more forewarning for that one. I would say I had recently a child who came to me in grade three who had been moved from shelter to shelter to shelter to shelter, who had four letter sounds. That was Mm. it. And after eight weeks of working with him one-on-one, he could read 66 words. Oh, wow. So I was, that's so cool. Yeah. I, that, that's why I love doing what I do. Well, that's the last question. (laughs) Why do you do what you love? Oh, (laughs) well, that was a good segue. Why, why, why do I do what I love or why do I teach? Well, why do you do what you love for education and literacy? I feel that I'm the luckiest person in the world to give students the 
ability to read. I feel like reading opens doors to opportunity. For me, it a second language opened doors to travel. I was able to live in France for a year. I traveled to other French speaking countries. I made friends internationally. And so I want to give that same privilege and same luxury to other students. And living in a bilingual country, not only does it open doors for opportunity, but it opens doors to employment opportunities too. And so I just want to give my students the world. And I feel like one of the ways to do that is to give them literacy and to give them um, a second language education as well. I love it. Well, we appreciate you being here so much and also for doing what you do every day. Thank you for just being so aware and for taking action. That's really amazing. Well, thank you for having me. I don't feel like I deserve that credit. I truly feel like there are equally incredible educators out there who are doing the same thing. And I've just been lucky to be able to share it today with you. Well, thank you so much. It was great to meet you. I'm the third Canadian, you know. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Now you know the bachelorette, Jillian Harris. Jillian Harris. Although I haven't met her yet. Kate Wynn. Kate Wynn. She was one of your guests. Previous podcast. A great uh, science of reading friend of mine. And now me. So thank you very much. We're three for three. And we we love you all. (laughs) Well, thank you. We love listening to you here and uh, really appreciate all the work the two of you do as well. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us.